0: You're listening to the Dwell on These Things podcast, a regular dose of Christ-centered encouragement to put your mind in a better place. Listen in as Pastor John Stongey shares Bible studies, interviews, training, and some of his most recent sermons. We're glad to have you with us today. This morning we're going to be talking about this idea of viewing yourself and viewing others through the lens of Christ's mercy. And we're going to see three different ways that this gets illustrated in the book of Proverbs, specifically in chapter 25. So if you would take your Bibles and open up to Proverbs 25, we're going to look at three sections of this chapter. I'm going to start us with verse 6, and then we're going to jump to two other sections. But Proverbs 25, starting with verse 6. And this is what we read in this portion of Scripture. Verse 6 says, Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great. For it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. And if you jump to verse 15, it says this, With patience a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue will break a bone. If you have found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit it. Let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house, lest he have his fill of you and hate you. Then if you jump to verse 21, it says this, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to look at this portion of Scripture together today, along with the companion Scriptures that we'll be looking at in a few moments. And Lord, we're grateful that we're able to start off our week doing this, that we're able to to meditate on the truth of your Word, that we're able to spend time in fellowship with one another, and that we're able to grow as men and women who know you and love you and invite your presence in our lives. Lord, we pray that you'd speak to our hearts and that you'd speak to our minds and that you'd help us to understand the content of your word as we're reading it and studying it together this morning. And we thank you for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, one of the, one of the fastest ways to become disappointed in life is to begin dwelling on all the good things you think you deserve, but you haven't yet received. Would you agree that that statement's true? That if you spend all your time dwelling on the things that you, the good things that you think you deserve that you have not yet received, don't you think that's a pretty fast track to become disappointed in life? I actually posed that question, uh, to one of my children, uh, just yesterday and we were talking about it for a minute and agreed. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty fast track to disappointment. So think about this from, um, just kind of the lens of how this goes in a, in a typical life. So it's very possible that you may believe that you deserve a raise at work. Or you may believe that you deserve a word of praise or to be married if you aren't or to have a better marriage if you are or for your kids to shine like angels or for your bank account to be filled to overflowing or for you to have a car that doesn't have a check engine light that continually comes on week after week, day after day. But none of these things have been promised to us. Those are all nice things. Those are all things that we certainly welcome if we have them, but not a single one of those things have been promised to us. And I actually believe when we look at what Scripture teaches us, we're shown that when we have Jesus, we truly do have everything that we need in this world. We may not have everything we would prefer, but we truly have everything that we need in this world when we have Jesus. We need him more than we need perfect earthly circumstances. We need Jesus more than we need the treasures of this earth. We need his mercy more than we need the momentary approval of our peers. So we could go through life disappointed that we didn't get some of the things that we thought that we deserved, or we could be grateful for the mercy of Christ, which is a blessing that he offers to us that we definitely didn't deserve. We don't deserve the mercy of Christ. The whole idea is that he's giving us or that he's not giving us what we actually deserved. When he's showing us his mercy, he's not giving us what we actually deserved. He's giving us something better than what we deserved. And if we can learn to become grateful for Christ's mercy, I believe we'll start to view ourselves and we'll start to view others through that lens. It'll actually have an impact on our day-to-day life. It'll have an impact on our perspective. We will start to view ourselves through the lens of Christ's mercy, and we'll start to view others through the lens of Christ's mercy. And how this works out is like this. As recipients of mercy, we show mercy. As those who didn't receive the condemnation that we deserved, we can choose not to condemn others, but rather bless them in Jesus' name. And in the verses that we just read from Proverbs chapter 25, again, I see at least three ways that this can be lived out. And I think Solomon shows us with with three very useful illustrations how this has practical implication in our day-to-day lives. In the view of of the mercy of Christ, we can honor those who lead us, we can humble ourselves, and we can bless our enemies. And I think each action requires an application of Christ-centered mercy. So let's start with the, the idea of honoring our leaders. Let's think about that concept for just a second. Sometimes that can be easy to do. Sometimes that can be very difficult to do. And Solomon brings this concept up this way. And I'll I'm going to reread verses 6 and 7 and verse 15. But he says it this way. He says, Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great. For it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. And then in verse 15, he said, With patience a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue will break a bone. So years ago, I heard a description that I thought was kind of interesting, and it was a description about the daily responsibilities of the President of the United States during the early days of our nation. So this would be late 1700s, early 1800s. And when I heard some of the things that the President was responsible for during that era, it doesn't really sound like a very appealing job. Because during the 1800s in particular, what people would do is they would line up outside the President's office. So this is before the Oval Office was built. That wasn't even built yet. That didn't get built until the early 1900s. And so they would line up outside the president's office and they would seek an audience with him. And then the goal was that they would, they would ask him if maybe he would consider appointing them to some sort of government position or an ambassadorship or something like that. And the president would have these meetings for hours every single day. That was a big part of his daily schedule, these appointment meetings meetings. And he would have that over and over and over again. And that doesn't seem like a very efficient system. And I I suspect that that's probably why it doesn't continue to this day. It's the type of thing that maybe somebody else can help with, and then you can give your approval to. But do you need to be the person vetting every single person coming through with all these appointments that need to be made? And when I think about that, when I look at some of the things that Solomon says here in Proverbs 25, I suspect that Solomon, as king of Israel, could probably identify with some similar things that took place during his reign, during his season of leadership. There were probably people coming to him for a variety of reasons and asking things of him that he had to approve or disapprove of on a daily basis. Now, there's a right way and there's a wrong way to present yourself to a king or to a leader. The wrong way could get you killed, (laughs) Uh, the, the, the right way might make you uh, actually uh, you know, be allowed to live for another day, but the wrong way is to puff yourself up and to assume that you have some sort of standing before them. The right way is to view yourself with sober judgment while doing your best to honor those who lead you. But I want you to think about something for just a second, specifically in this idea of, of honoring our leaders. I think if we're honest, if you and I are completely transparent and, and take a close examination of what motivates us in any given moment, I think if we're honest, we need to admit at times that we prefer to be honored more so than we prefer honoring somebody else. And I think there's multiple ways that that can play out in our lives, but I think our natural inclination is to desire to be honored more so than to honor somebody else. I think we covet the honor that belongs to leaders. I think we covet the praise that they deserve. And I think that that happens on the human level, but I also think it happens on the spiritual level. And I'll give you an example of how I think it plays out on the spiritual level. How often in our lives do we attempt to take credit for something that God accomplished? I bet you we do that more often than we even realize. I think so often we take credit for things that really God is the one who, who's orchestrated it, and yet we take credit as if it was our idea or our activity that somehow facilitated it. And I think we do that because there's a part of us that actually wants the praise that rightfully belongs to him. And that can be a very dangerous thing for us to dabble in. And I think the examples that Solomon give us here have not just a human application, but it also has a spiritual application in how we learn to honor our Lord himself. And when we begin to view our leaders and ourselves through the lens of Christ's mercy, I think we can start to learn not to covet somebody else's honor. I think it's far better to be lifted up by someone you respect than to puff yourself up in their presence in the attempt to to impress them. And when you look at some of the things that Solomon's saying here in this passage of Scripture, he also speaks of patience. And he speaks of speech being effective ways to interact with the leaders that we're trying to honor. And when you look at his words here, he seems to indicate that merciful speech can persuade the most powerful people and leaders tend to notice those who communicate in such a way. Because leaders tend to be, depending on the role, they tend to be under constant critique. During the course of my life, I have had multiple friends who have run for statewide office uh, or have been involved in leadership of different organizations. I was just talking to a friend the other day who, uh, who oversees a nonprofit organization that has a a pretty big reach and a pretty big budget, and so it it puts her in a, a pretty noticeable position. And here's what I've noticed about just about any realm of leadership, whether it be political leadership, whether it be community leadership, whether it be church leadership or organizational leadership. If you put yourself out there, and I know some of you are already in leadership and some of you aspire to be leaders. If you put yourself out there in any realm of leadership, You have to understand that what you do is going to be analyzed and it's going to be critiqued. And sometimes that's very good that that's happening. You want to hold leaders accountable, but you're also going to go through seasons where it feels like some of the minutia of life is being analyzed or it's being critiqued. And here you have Solomon talking about this idea of speaking with like a a gentle way leaders, like with a a soft tongue, he says, with a, a soft word. He says a soft tongue will break a bone. Those in leadership are usually under constant critique. So sometimes, you know, as the most minuscule details of their life is being picked apart on a regular basis, if your words are saturated with the mercy of Christ when you interact with people that are, that are in a position of leadership that you're trying to communicate something to or you're trying to, to get something to their attention, if you communicate in such a way that your words are saturated with the mercy of Christ, you'll, you'll be like a healing balm to their spirit. You'll be such a welcomed presence because that is so uncommon. It's not the common response that those that are serving in those roles are used to receiving from many people that they interact with. So in view of the mercy of Christ that we've received, as we're conscious of the mercy that Jesus shows us, what we want to do is we want to to make ourselves helpful instead of just making ourselves visible when we have the audience of someone that we admire or that we respect. We want to use that as an occasion to demonstrate the mercy of Christ because we're conscious of the fact that we've received the mercy of Christ. And Solomon goes on to show us another application of how viewing ourselves and others through the lens of Christ's mercy can be quite helpful. And you see this here illustrated in verses 16 and 17, where we're invited by these examples. And this might not stand out to you right away, but I'll explain to you what I mean by by this in just a second. I think these examples show us that we're called to humble ourselves. We're we're actually called to humble ourselves. Well, what does that that mean? How is Solomon bringing this up in this passage? Let me reread verses 16 and 17. He says, If you have found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit it. And then he says, in verse 17, he says, Let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house, lest he have his fill of you and hate you. Now, what does this have to do with humbling ourselves? Why am I saying that that's at the heart of what Solomon is is trying to communicate here? Well, let, let me tell you something I noticed this past week that kind of cracked me up. Um, my biggest vice is overeating, all right? I'm just going to confess that to you. Maybe if I confess it someday, I won't do it. But I'm 44 years old. I haven't had that day happen yet. But it could happen, right? I've seen crazier things happen. And so I know for me... I mean one <clears throat> one of the things that'll make me happiest is 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 certain good foods. And I'm one of those weird people that's probably probably less than half of the of the people in this room would fall into this category. But I'd be curious to know where you stand on this. You know some people have a sweet tooth. I have a salt tooth. Isn't that weird? Do you know what I mean by that? Like I prefer salty snacks and treats more so than than sweet things, even though I very much like sweet things, and I do try and keep my life in balance. You know, you want the sweet and you want the salty. But if I lean in one direction or another, the truth is it's, it's more toward salty things. I can, like a salty thing really strikes my mind as a dessert sometime. And when I'm seeing all these things with salted caramel and salted this, I'm like, finally, finally they have acknowledged that people like me exist, right? You know, salted caramel, come on, that's great stuff. Well, Several weeks ago, and I actually told her that I was going to be sharing something about this today, although she doesn't know what I'm about to say, but several weeks ago, I discovered that a member of our church was starting up a business, creating all sorts of snacks, some of which are sweet, some of which are salty. Did anyone see Sarah Graham's posts on Facebook about some of these things? You saw this too. So ever since she started posting that stuff, I said, Sarah, you know what I want? And she's like, what? I said, I want to put an order in for beef jerky, like ASAP as soon as possible. And she's like, okay. And I didn't just keep like bringing it up. I kept bugging her about it. Right. And I thought, I thought this would be kind of funny. Like maybe I'll get the beef jerky sooner because homemade beef jerky is good stuff. And I know, I knew it was going to be good. And so even on the, during the Wednesday night Bible study, some others that are in this room kind of joined me in needling her about this. So you know what happened this past Wednesday? She brought a whole tray of sesame beef jerky to Bible study on Wednesday night. It was a lot. Like, if you went and bought it in a store, you would have to uh, sell your car first, then go buy the beef jerky, right? It was a lot. And I looked at it, and my eyes lit up. And I was, she, she was the first one here, so she brought it, and I thought, oh, my goodness, that's a pile. And, uh, and I, I wanted so much of that stuff. And I, I took a few pieces of it. And I noticed that others, as they came in, they were noticing it. We were all taking it. And we attacked that beef jerky like the carnivores that we truly are. Like, it got, it got attacked on Wednesday night. But I also noticed something curious. It'd be kind of funny to hear uh, from others that, that were there if they noticed this as well. I noticed that as much as we were all enjoying that, we were thoroughly enjoying that, at the end of the night, there was one piece left and I, no- I noticed it there, and I was like, ooh, there's still a piece left. And I was like, oh, wait, no, don't, don't take it. Maybe somebody else would want it. And then I noticed others kind of noticing, they're like, oh, there's a... No, don't take no, it. I'll-, I'll just let it be. Nobody took the last piece. <laughs> to my knowledge, at least in my sight, and I waited for a while there, nobody took it. Nobody took the last piece. And I even thought, you know, like you could even kind of be calculating, too, and think... Maybe if I just like, wait a little while longer and just kind of see if people clear up, maybe I could offer to help Sarah clean up and be like, oh, there's a piece left here, so you don't have to package it. I'll just eat that for you, do that. I didn't even get a chance to do that. She packed everything up, and, and my plan didn't work. But it was kind of interesting. <laughs> I was just amazed that nobody swiped it. Nobody took it. And I think that the the mindset behind that, and I don't, I don't want to, I was, I was actually very impressed when I noticed this, I thought in a very special way, this was a demonstration of humility on the part of the group, because in a subtle way over a non-consequential thing, you have a group of people here that were putting the preference of somebody else above themselves, because we all wanted it, but nobody took it because they were thinking about somebody else that might want it instead of them. I thought that was pretty cool to see. And that was definitely something that was rather tempting to munch on. And when you look at what Solomon says here, he's actually giving very similar counsel when he's talking about honey. No, he's, he's talking about honey here. So now if, if you're, I mean, does anyone here like honey? You know, do you use honey in like your tea and stuff like that? I like honey, right? Um, and here he's talking about honey. And his counsel was not to be gluttonous when you find it. So if you find it, if you're out and you find some honey, don't be gluttonous when you find it. Eat enough for yourself, but don't eat beyond that. Have enough for yourself, but don't eat beyond that. Leave the next portion for somebody else. You don't have to eat it all. Have some. Enjoy it. But don't eat it all. Don't make yourself sick through overconsumption. Because what's overconsumption? Overconsumption in a context like that is actually a visible demonstration of a self-centered mindset and a lack of humility, a lack of being willing to put somebody else's desires or somebody else's needs above your own. And so he says, he says you don't have to eat at all, have enough for yourself, but, but don't you don't have to finish it up. And I think he's also demonstrating humility here in these verses in another way when he tells us that we can display humility in the respect that we show for another person's time. And the way he illustrates this here is by referencing the fact that he, he tells us avo- to avoid constantly lingering at your neighbor's house or he's going to get sick of you. And he says he's actually going to end up hating you you know, if you do that. I actually have friends who uh, were tempted to buy another home because they could not keep their neighbors away from their home to the point where their neighbors would just invite themselves in. And hang out from time to time. They're like, you don't even knock anymore. They literally, it was bothering them so much, they decided at one point to buy another home, but then their neighbors moved. So that's the only reason they did not buy another home. They were this close. I remember when I was growing up and I would spend time at my grandmother's house. My grandmother lived in a row home in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. And so when you're on those front porches, you could see all the way down through, like a straight shot to all your neighbor's front porches on this side or this side, and it actually was a setup that produced a lot of nice community in her neighborhood. Uh, My aunt, her sister, also lived there, and I remember uh, they had one neighbor who would look down that, that opening of the porches and wait for my grandmother and my aunt to be out on their front porch, and she would come down and she would stand in front there and wait for them to come out so that she could come and talk, which was fine. They were happy to talk. But when you got to hour two and when you got to hour three, it was a little too much for them from time to time. And I remember realizing this neighbor never leaves until they make this neighbor leave. This neighbor never leaves on her own, she stays there until they end it. And I never saw this neighbor leave without some sort of impetus to do so. So this is what my grandmother and my aunt would do. One of them would step inside, and I had a younger sister who was very small at the time, and and she'd be fine. She'd be playing inside doing something. One of them would step inside and call out to the other one and say, the baby's crying. Any chance you could come in and help me? And I'd see either my grandmother or my aunt, whoever was left out on the porch. Oh, I'm so sorry. I have to go inside. And they go inside to take care of the baby. And my youngest sister would be like, why do you guys still call me the baby? You know, it's like, it's like, I'm kind of too old for this. It's like, listen, it helps end an awkward conversation. And so I looked at that and I was even thinking about that this week. I, I, Believe it or not, I actually texted my sisters to remind them of that story, and everybody remembered it, including my youngest sister, who was supposedly the baby, and yet she has distinct memories of this. But it was something that, that my grandmother found torturous and found very difficult. And failing to respect the time and failing to respect the boundaries of another person is actually an issue of humility. Scripture calls us to put others before ourselves and not to approach life like we're the most important person in the neighborhood. But I want to make mention of of something related to biblical humility that I think is worth noting because I think sometimes we think of this incorrectly. Biblical humility does not mean that you think poorly of yourself. That's not what scripture is talking about when it encourages us to practice humility. It doesn't mean you're supposed to think poorly of yourself. That's not the idea at all. Biblical humility means that we begin to see ourselves through the light of God's eyes. That you and I start to see ourselves exactly as we really are through the eyes of God. That's biblical humility, that we recognize who He is and who we are, and we see ourselves through that lens, and that then translates in us being willing to elevate others above ourselves. That we would be willing to lift somebody else up, even at great expense to ourselves. And in fact, this is exactly what Jesus did for us when he came to this earth and he took the form of a servant so that he could serve us and lift us up, choosing to demonstrate humility, even though we worship him. But yet he demonstrated humility. It doesn't mean he thought poorly of himself. It simply means that he looked at us with care and concern and chose to lift us up. And I love what scripture teaches us about these things. In fact, 1 Peter 5.5, 5, which I'm going to read in just a moment, is one of my favorite verses in the Bible because I think it speaks to an issue that we all wrestle with in regard to pride and humility. And it's not the only place that this verse is referenced. This is quoted verbatim in the book of Proverbs. It's also quoted verbatim in the book of James. And then you have it in 1 Peter. So this same verse appears three times in Scripture. And it says this, in 1 Peter 5.5, 5, it says... Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So we're called to clothe ourselves with humility toward one another. Again, it doesn't mean you think poorly of yourself. It just simply means that you're seeing yourself through the eyes of God and you're choosing to lift your brother or your sister up because Christ lifted you up. We clothe ourselves with humility, recognizing that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then Scripture in Philippians 2 demonstrates for us the humility of Christ and how that's supposed to be lived out in your life and in my life. And in Philippians 2, verses 3 through 5, it says this. It says, "...do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others." Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus. So as Christ demonstrated this for us, as the Holy Spirit is transforming our minds, as we trust in Jesus Christ, we actually have the opportunity and the privilege to live this out toward one another. And so we don't go about our lives filled with selfish ambition. We don't go about our lives filled with conceit. In humility, we try to lift other people up. We consider your brother, we consider your sister significant, And we value them and we demonstrate them. We look out for their interests, not only our own interests. We save them a piece of beef jerky. I think it says that in a more contemporary translation, right? We save the piece for them. But the idea is, as Christ demonstrated humility toward us, as he lifted us up, even at great personal cost to himself, that that's the mindset that we learn to demonstrate toward one another in view of his mercy, So we start to see ourselves through the the lens of his mercy. We start to see others through the lens of his mercy. And when you look at what Solomon says when we go back to Proverbs 25, there's another category of people that he brings up in that portion of Scripture that I think provide an excellent example for us to demonstrate that mercy toward. And in that portion of Scripture, we're encouraged to bless our enemies. Now think about that for just a second, this idea of blessing our enemies. Even just think about the word enemy itself, because we're going to pick that word apart in just a second, or at least the concept. But look again at what he says in Proverbs 25, verse 21 and following. He says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink, for you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Now again, I want you to think about the word enemy, because it's, it's used there, it's used elsewhere in Scripture. Enemy is a word that we toss around in a variety of contexts. So sometimes when we're using the word enemy, we're thinking about two nations that are opposed to one another. And so we sometimes will talk about like national enemies or political enemies. Sometimes we use the term enemy to describe maybe how two rival teams will operate. You know, oh that, te- they're our enemy. They're our enemy. We have to defeat them. And so so sometimes it has a sports application. Other times we tend to think of enemies as being the people who create conflict for us in our day-to-day life, people that have set themselves against us or people that we have set ourselves against. But I want to ask you a question just because I want you to think about this for a minute. Do we have real human enemies or is that more an issue of perception than reality? Do we have real human enemies, or is that more of a, just a perception issue and not necessarily a reality? I used to think of some people in this world as my enemies. You know, there are people that they even say, um, you know, sometimes I've, I've, I've even heard like certain political leaders, they keep an enemies list. I think that's got to be very unhealthy for your mind, to keep an enemies list, right? But I used to, like if I'm honest with you, I used to think of certain people in my day-to-day that as, as people I've put in a category of, yeah, I guess that person's kind of kind of my enemy. And I've noticed that over the course of my adult life, the Lord changing my perspective on that because I don't view people that way any longer. I did, but I don't. So what's happened? What's changed? Well, there's also some people that at different seasons of my life, I think would probably have thought of me as their enemy. Even if I'm not thinking of myself as their enemy, there are people that, that may, may think of, of me as their enemy. There are people in this world that don't even know me that would probably think I was their enemy just because of the position I hold uh, in, the, in a local church. They would make an assumption and maybe think of me as an enemy, even though I don't see myself as, as their enemy. And so I, I think even if somebody does see me as their enemy... I don't have to reciprocate that attitude. I don't have to let that become my attitude toward them, even if that's their attitude toward me. Because I do have real enemies, but they're not human. And what I mean by that is this. My enemies and your enemies are spiritual, not human Ephesians 6.12 makes an important distinction for us that I think is helpful when we're talking about this idea of enemies. There it tells us that our real battle is not against flesh and blood. So if you've ever thought of another human being as your enemy, you are actually making a mistake. And it's a mistake I've made many times as well, and it's a mistake that many people make throughout the course of their lives. But Ephesians 6.12 tells us that our real enemy is not flesh and blood. Our real enemy is the devil and the demons that align with him in the spiritual realm. That's our real enemy. We're all in the same boat. He's working against us. That's our enemy. Not your neighbor. Your neighbor is not your enemy. So since I don't have human enemies, that means I guess I don't have to treat anyone like my enemy any longer. Because I don't have any. If I don't have any human enemies, I don't have to treat anyone like my enemy and Solomon speaks of that in this proverb. He's using the term enemy here, but he's using this, you could even kind of put it in quotes in the sense of saying, he's, he's not trying to teach you how to have an enemy. He's trying to teach you how not to have an enemy. He's using the term enemy to talk about the idea of how you might be predisposed to think of somebody, but he's then showing you how to change the whole scenario. And he speaks of it here you know, how to not have an enemy any longer. He speaks of this in this proverb, but this is also what Jesus spoke of in his Sermon on the Mount. Now, according to Solomon, the way Solomon speaks of it here, he says that basically it's wise to give our, quote, enemies food and drink when they need them. So if you're giving somebody food and drink when they need them, does that show that you really think of them as your enemy? Because if they're your enemy, are you really going to be giving them food and drink when they need it? It shows that something's happening to your thinking. Your your thinking is changing in regard to other people. And he, he tells us here that in doing so, not only is it the right thing to do, but it's also going to have an impact on another person's conscience. You know, it's like heaping burning coals on their head. It impacts a person's conscience when someone that they thought of as their enemy does an act of kindness for them. And he also tells us here that we'll be rewarded in some way by the Lord who sees this demonstration of Christ-honoring mercy that we're willing to show even to somebody who has set themselves against us as an enemy, that somehow, in some way, the Lord chooses to reward that demonstration of mercy. Jesus himself told us to love our enemies. He also told us to pray for our enemies. And I think that that's an important word of of wisdom that Christ has given to us because I've learned that it becomes pretty difficult to hate somebody. It becomes pretty difficult to consider somebody your enemy when you've started to make them the subject of your prayers. Jesus said it like this. From his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, starting with verse 43, he said, "'You have heard that it was said, "'You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy.'" But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. So Jesus here tells us to love our enemies and he tells us to pray for those who persecute us. I find that easier to do when I'm thinking back on a scenario than I do when I'm in the midst of the scenario. And what I mean by that is this, sometimes I get to a spot in my life where I think of people who have either hurt me or offended me. And I I think to myself, I have two options in this moment. I can hold a grudge against that person and feel bitter toward them the rest of my life. Or I could start praying for them now, because as I start praying for them, the Lord's going to change my heart and I'm going to view them differently. I'm going to start seeing them through the lens of Christ's mercy. I've received mercy, so I need to give mercy. I don't need to uh, I don't need to accept the invitation to treat somebody like an enemy just because they may treat me as their enemy. And so I've decided, all right, you know, try to do this, but it's easier to do for me after the offense has taken place than it is when I'm in the midst of the offense. So one of the things that I'm trying to work on in my own spiritual life is that when I'm in the midst of the offense, adopting this mindset then. You know, it's one thing to adopt it later, and that's certainly helpful. But what does it look like to adopt this mindset where you love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you in the midst of the persecution? I think that's a a whole new level of, of growth that the Lord is trying to nudge us into and help us to discover, because it's also what he's demonstrated. Think about what Jesus did during the course of his earthly ministry. Think about the ways people treated him, and think about what Scripture what scripture shows us in Luke chapter 23. I'll bring it up on the screen for us here. And in Luke 23, verse 34, it says this, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What context was Jesus in when he said those words? He was being crucified. He was experiencing the pain of the nails through his flesh and his bone, right? And between his bones. You know, he was in the midst of experiencing that. The pain was happening. The thirst was happening. The suffocation was happening. All those things that go into a crucifixion. The insults were happening. You know, just, just all of the things that go into that, he was in the midst of it. This was a statement not made after the fact. This isn't a statement that he made after he was resurrected, This is a statement that he made in the midst of being crucified. And so when he tells us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us, he's not telling us something that he was unwilling to do. He's telling us something that he then demonstrated in the most powerful way possible. So what he's showing us is that it's actually possible to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you while you're still in the midst of the pain While you're still in the midst of the persecution, it's possible because he's made it possible. And he transforms our thinking and he gives us a new heart. And as recipients of his mercy, we learn to show that mercy to those that he's placed in our lives. So let's say this as we finish up this morning. When we learn to view ourselves and when we learn to view others through the lens of Christ's mercy, the nature of every relationship we'll ever have begins to change. We'll treat ourselves differently. We'll treat those who lead us differently. And we'll treat those who have set themselves against us differently. And what a blessing it is to to be an object of the mercy of God through the work that Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. We didn't deserve this blessing. We don't deserve this mercy. But we can live as men and women who are grateful recipients of it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and just for the privilege it is to be able to look at these things that you bring to our attention as we look at a portion of scripture like this. Lord, we're grateful for the fact that you love us. We're grateful for the fact that you have done so many amazing things in our day-to-day lives that we actually lose track of all the different ways that you've blessed us. And there are ways that you're blessing us that we're not even aware of because they're happening on, on such a deep level that it's, it's possible that our minds don't even perceive some of these things. But Father, we're grateful for the mercy that you've shown us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we're grateful for the fact that, that even though we deserve condemnation, we completely deserve condemnation, you have passed us over for judgment. The pain that we deserved and the condemnation that we deserved was placed upon your son on the cross so that we could live as men and women who are the recipients of mercy, who are grateful for mercy, and as grateful men and women, we can demonstrate that mercy to others. And. We don't have to have this thought in our mind that people need to deserve it for us to be willing to show it once we realize that we didn't deserve it, and yet you were willing to show it to us. So Lord, we pray that when we interact with those that are in our day-to-day life, we pray that as we uh, at times experience testing and as we experience challenges and stresses and all the things that come our way, we pray that we wouldn't start preaching a message to ourselves that, that this isn't what we deserve or, or we deserve better, and then we just start grumbling and start complaining and... And daydreaming about what it would be like if we didn't have any life stresses or anything like that. You show us in your word that the truth is the only thing we actually deserved was condemnation. The only thing we deserved was separation from you. And yet you looked at us with compassion and you showed us your mercy and you took the condemnation we deserved upon yourself so that we could walk as men and women who are free. We don't need to go back to the chains of our sin. We don't need to go back to that old. Uh, kind of thinking that we once adopted. We don't have to start seeing people as our enemies any longer. We don't have to resent those we have conflict with. We don't have to hold on to bitterness. We could forgive those who offend us. And again, we could do so with a recognition of the fact that this is what you demonstrated to us first. While people were still in the midst of crucifying your son, Father, we see your son expressing the desire to forgive, seeking their forgiveness, asking you, Father, not to hold that sin against them. So, Lord, help us to pray for those who have hurt us and those who have persecuted us and help us to love others as you have loved us. And again, Lord, we pray that as you transform our thinking and as you transform our lives that we'd start to see ourselves and others through the lens of the mercy of your Son, Jesus Christ, We thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to look at these things together today, and we pray that this would be a a series of truths that would just stick in our hearts over the course of the long term. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. No matter what you're going through, you are not alone. Sis, if you've experienced pain in your father-daughter relationship, I want you to know that you are loved and seen. I'm Kia Stevens, host of the Hope for Women with Father Wounds podcast, and I created my show to help you exchange your father wounds for the love of God the Father. Join me for encouragement, wisdom, and scripture. Just search Hope for Women with Father Wounds on lifeaudio.com or wherever you get your podcasts.